Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. So before we get on to Alistair and his World Cup so far, just to give you a sense of what we're going to be talking about in this program. So we're going to do something on China, something on Malaysia. We're going to deal with a very interesting speech from David Miliband, who's a friend of both of us, but who's talking about Britain's place in the world. And we'll also have a look at strikes and some of the Labour debates around Brexit. But to begin with, let's let's start with China. And Alistair, you've been reading about Xi Jinping, thinking about Xi Jinping, and you've been looking at some of these demonstrations in China. I mean, they're pretty amazing, aren't they? I, I think that there's been lots of comparisons made with Tiananmen Square, which is understandable because that's the big one that people remember. I was a journalist then, I was on the mirror, and I can, you know, I think there was a sense at the start that this might lead somewhere other than crackdown, but it didn't. And I feel exactly the same about this one, I'm afraid. I think the crackdown on this is going to be really severe uh, because he's gone from being the, the, the been protests there have been quite a lot of protests going on fairly small fairly localized uh, mainly in relation to the zero covid strategy where people are being locked up for months and months and months there was this terrible fire where people were locked up and i think 11 people were killed there's been the development of the, what they call the blank the white paper protest where people just hold up white paper as a way of saying that they don't have freedom of speech. But I think what's been interesting in the last couple of days, started in quite a big one in Shanghai, is that this is now developing into people complaining about the the government and in particular about President Xi Jinping. And that, I think, will lead to pretty ferocious crackdown. And people may be wondering, well, why aren't the police just piling in? They piled in on that guy from the BBC and a few others. But in a way, they don't need to pile in because you've got to understand it's such a surveillance state that they can get everybody afterwards quite easily. So, so just just to loop loop back for a second, um, j- just to set a little bit more context around this, and and then maybe get you on the their response. So, China has gone for this very very aggressive zero COVID and has been running it obviously since the very beginning of the breakout in Wuhan. So this has been going on now for a very long time. It's been going on for almost uh, two years uninterrupted. And it's a question, I guess, almost three years, I suppose. I guess it's a question of, firstly, why is China doing this? Why Mm. are they so determined there's going to be no COVID at all? They were, of course, in line with the way that the rest of the world was behaving when they began doing this January, February 2020. In fact, they were ahead of the rest of the world. And in some ways, the rest of the world followed their example and went from thinking that zero COVID lockdowns was something that could only be done in an authoritarian state like China to beginning to think it was something that could be done in countries all around the world. And rather surprisingly, it did happen in countries all around the world. But as other countries have come out of lockdown and have begun to, as it were, in inverted commas, accept COVID as part of the, the general disease within their population, China has continued to want to entirely eliminate it. And, and this, as you say, has triggered these protests that have stretched all the way from Urumqi, Wulumuchi, which is the the major city in Xinjiang, right out in northwest China towards Central Asia and, and uh, Tajikistan, right the way through to Shanghai in the, in the east. It makes you wonder whether it's about dealing with COVID or whether the absolute fixation is about control. 
Because the economy, the economy has taken a massive hit. We've talked a lot about populism, but one of the things that is very clear is the way that COVID has defined political careers in both directions. There are politicians such as DeSantis, the Florida governor, who've made their political careers off being very, very loose on COVID, going for no lockdowns at all. In fact, prosecuting people who even asked for vaccination certificates. Right the way through, I think you pointed out in a recent email to me, uh, an Australian uh, political leader who in Victoria has built his career off a very hard reaction to COVID. Uh, Dan Andrews, yeah, and he's and he's just won his third successive term. And uh, all the media is saying he wasn't going to get back, or if he did, it was a hung parliament. And he won very, very well, partly because people felt he did really well on COVID. Yeah, and but it, it's not just, I think, a question of really well, because some places, I mean, Angela Merkel in Germany did well, but she did it in a very nuanced, balanced way and in quite a complex way. What's interesting, I think, in the new politics of the last five years is the way that actually the politicians that get huge boosts in their opinion polls are the ones that went very, very radical to one side or another, either going, as I say, with DeSantis, no lockdown at all, or going in Victoria hard. And I think Xi Jinping in China is obviously attached his credibility to this incredibly hard zero COVID. And it raises questions, I suppose, about the flexibility and responsiveness of, of the Chinese regime. Mm. Why is it when every other country, and this is where you were getting to, I guess, why is it when every other country has managed to change its policy and nuance it, China has remained so determined? And is it that nobody can actually get to see, that nobody can get him to change his his mind? Mm. The other factor, I think, is that they, they were very sniffy about the vaccines being developed outside China, but it appears that their vaccine is not as effective. But it's, there's some very interesting stuff going on in and around the Chinese leadership. There's, this may be nothing, but a friend of mine sent me a thing pointing out that in official state media, they've stopped calling President Xi the people's leader. He's now just called the leader. And Wang Yi, the foreign minister, has stopped giving him this label of the people's leader. Now, it, it sounds kind of tidy, but... I, th- I suspect it, that might be quite significant because the, the recent party congress that they had was deemed not to have gone that well for him. And we, of course, just think of him as being the most powerful man in the world and that pretty much out and out dictator. I think we're going to see some of that in the next, in the coming days. But it could be that there are forces moving around him which are making him more vulnerable than we realize. And I, th- I do think these people who are protesting, they're unbelievably brave because it's not like going out in a protest here where, you know, you might get arrested, you might get hit or whatever. But these are people who are literally, you know, risking just getting thrown into the prison and throw away the key, some of them. And, and some of the images are direct repeats of global images. I mean, it's a sign of the way in which social media creates these global images. So you would have seen a young woman confronting these kind of Robocop armed police, yeah. deliberately filming them on her cell phone and refusing to move, which was a very much a replay in her stance of that very famous picture of an African-American woman confronting a large Robocop Mm. police crowd in in the United States. But I think the other thing is that we shouldn't necessarily think that President Xi's vulnerability is necessarily going to make the world a safer place. Often when these regimes begin to feel vulnerable is the moment at which they become more radical. Mm. And I, you know, I continue to be very worried about China, Taiwan, because I think if he's looking for a moment to move against Taiwan, he will feel this is the moment where 
the Western economies are very weak and where they will feel it's going to be very difficult to put in counter sanctions and sanctions mm. around Taiwan. But I also think if he begins to lose credibility at home, the temptation to do stuff abroad. Well, two things on that. The first is on the point about be careful what you wish for. Uh, Lionel Barber, ex-editor of the FT, had a very interesting piece in The New European last week pointing out the you know, there appear to be quite considerable moves within the American administration to try to get some sort of deal on Ukraine with Putin, unspeakable though that might seem, because they're worried about what might follow him. And in relation to, to Taiwan, there was another election last week, and that was the midterm elections in Taiwan, which the president, Tsai Ing-wen, projected, framed as a, if you like, a, a kind of referendum, not a referendum, but it was, she said it was a vote of confidence in her stance on China, her very tough stance on China. And she did so badly that she's had to resign as the leader of the party. She's staying on as president, but she's, she's resigned as the leader of the Democratic Progressive Party. And the, the party that, that is a, not close to China, but that is much more sympathetic to China and less belligerent vis-a-vis -vis China, did better. So that's the KMT, and they're, they're going to win mayoral elections in 13 counties, which is, you know, they were, I think they were expected her, her party's going to win five, which is down on the last local elections. Well, it's also very interesting because KMT, I think, were very much the traditional ruling party. I mean, they go all the way back to, to the founding of, of yeah. modern Taiwan. That was the party which Chiang Kai-shek uh, set up. Well, Sun Yat-sen, of course, founded originally. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that's interesting, too, as we look around the world at the ways in which these big dominant ruling parties either corrode and disappear, this has happened in, in France with both the left and the right, mm. or in Taiwan when they seem to hove back into view again. I wonder if with her, because she does get such phenomenal support from America, from Europe, from different parts of Asia, that sometimes you, you, do, you have a mistaken sense of what, what is happening, in, if, if you like, in real public opinion. And the fact that it led to her resigning as the leader that is that that suggests there's a, a lot more pro-chinese sentiment there than we might think and it can be very common can't it i suppose this idea that you can be celebrated internationally even in the case of the ethiopian prime minister you get a nobel peace prize yeah and then find your country collapsing into civil war around you mm. and i suppose people might you know touching on a sensitive subject for a second suggest that you know maybe that is what happened in a sense maybe with blair in iraq maybe happened with cameron on some of the stuff he was doing around Libya or trying to do around Syria, that you can get into a mindset where you very much become, or even Gordon Brown around the financial crisis, you can become really celebrated globally and internationally for your role in uh, role working with other partners. But actually domestically, it doesn't really play out. Yes. I think, I think it's far better, Rory, to be like Johnson, Sunak and Trust and to be celebrated neither domestically nor internationally. <laughs> much, much safer place to be. Listen, the other, the other election we should cover off because we got quite a few questions about it both last week and this is the election in in Malaysia and one of the questions was has any prime minister ever arrived via such an extraordinary route and this is Anwar Ibrahim and by the way uh, Rory I know how you love establishment stuff and and you like all those right honorables and your OBEs and you definitely want to be Lord Stewart at one time this guy's name he's prime minister Anwar Ibrahim and the letters after his name go SSAP DGSM, DUPN, SPNS, SPCM, SSPJ, SPDK, DMPN, KGCR, MP. That's wonderful. So, so remember, remember that so Malaysia is, of course, a monarchy, and it has all these titles going all the way up. So you can be called a dato, which I guess is a sort of 
a junior sir or lord. You can be called a, a Tuan Sri, which is a you know an even grander sort of lord. And he's accumulated a lot of that. But just to take it right back to the very beginning, Anwar Ibrahim um, is an extraordinary veteran Malaysian politician who I think served in almost every cabinet since the early 80s, was very close to President Mahathir, controversial figure, quite anti-British often in his rhetoric in yeah. the 80s, who led Malaysia's shift from a, I suppose it's reputation sixty. I grew up in Malaysia, which is mm-hmm. why I've got you know a bit of. I was lived there for three years. Did you Did you get any letters after your name while you were there or not? I didn't. I didn't. Oh. I would have loved to. I really would have loved to. Never mind. Never mind. But definitely at the moment when I was there, which was late seventies, early eighties, it was seen as this very, very sleepy, quite friendly country, which mm. had come out of the Malayan emergency, communist insurgency had a very pro-British government. And then Mahathir took over and he drove quite an anti-British pro-Malaysian agenda, which coincided with fantastic economic growth uh, through to the Asian financial crisis in end of 97, beginning of 98. And he began to then fall out with Anwar Ibrahim very dramatically. Who, who was his deputy and the finance minister, wasn't he? He's his deputy and finance minister and ended up turning against him and bringing a case for him, which got him prosecuted for sodomy. And corruption. Sodomy and corruption, yeah. And Amway Ibrahim, who most of the people I know in Malaysia have generally seen as one of the good guys of Malaysian politics, suddenly found himself embroiled in this horrifying scandal. He's somebody who there's no reason to believe that he was gay. He's married man with a lot of kids, and suddenly he found himself embroiled in this scandal that got him sent to prison for sodomy. Mm. And actually, a reminder also, when we talk about Qatar, which we were talking about last week, that Malaysia is an, another country where it is possible to go to, to prison for being gay. And in this case, it was used as this brutal political attack. Mm. Um, he was then very much in the wilderness. And then in came a horrible corruption scandal. We talked a lot about how in Japan, there is a, a situation where you get these prime ministers who come from these big political families. And, and in the case of Malaysia, a man called Najib Razak, who was the son of a prime minister, the nephew of a prime minister, got involved in a scandal called the 1MDB scandal in 2009, mm. well, from 2009 onwards when it was established, where literally billions of dollars went missing. And out of the back of that, Mahathir, this guy's talking about the early 80s, comes back in his 90s to win an election and again, the assumption was that he would hand over to Amr Ibrahim, didn't. Amr Ibrahim's wife became Deputy Prime Minister, and now Amr Ibrahim is finally back, not having won a majority, but with a coalition, which, to loop back to your point about titles, relates to the king. You've missed a second conviction for sodomy in 2015, and it was while he was still in prison that he kind of reconciled with uh, Mahathir Mohammed, and they then went on to win an election, and they sort of had an unspoken agreement that he would take over. Eventually, he got released after a royal pardon and then came back via uh, a by-election, I think, while his wife was still deputy prime minister. And now he's, he's gone on, he's, he's going to be the 10th prime minister of, uh, of Malaysia. So he has led a pretty remarkable life. Uh, he's, pretty, he's on the kind of reforming wing of his party, isn't he? Yes, he's definitely definitely seen as a moderate reformer, definitely a huge improvement on Najib Brezak, who was a, a really brutal, corrupt politician. Mm. And I think it, it is something that could be positive for the region. Malaysia is an Islamic success story. It's something that people in the, in the Muslim world are very, very proud of. 
it's a country that has become more conservative religiously. I mean, just, just yeah. in a sort of very straightforward sense, when I was there in the early 80s, you saw very few headscarves. It's now much more visibly in terms of people's clothing, more conservative. But it's positioned, of course, right next to Singapore and is a very important player in balancing how all these countries, including, of course, Indonesia, which is the big giant in the area, balance against China and balance particularly against China in terms of China's naval ambitions and its access to all those ports. So it's mm. something that Australia will be looking at closely, the United States will be looking at closely, Japan will be looking at closely. And Malaysia is no longer, I think, simply a marginal sleepy player. It's, it's very much important to geopolitics. So you mentioned in the introduction, David Miliband's speech, and I had dinner with David last night, so I had a chance to quiz him about it. And um, the, the first thing I think is worth saying is how infrequently these days senior politicians sort of make speeches that you'd kind of think were worth having a proper discussion about. 100%. I can't remember. When was the last time, has James Cleverly made a big foreign policy speech? Has your friend Gillian Keegan made a big speech about the future of our education system? I think these big speeches are, are important and we just don't, we don't see enough of them. Same on the Labour side too. Well, it's a sense that sort of ambition has gone, hasn't it? And, and maybe that people think that attention spans are too short, that everything is about these tiny little moments on social media and nobody has the patience for it. Yeah, but in which case, why does there appear to be this interest in these longer form podcasts and why, why are <laughs> that, books doing so well? And I think both politics and media have got this wrong about what people are wanting. I think they actually do want greater depth. And, and just remind us, when is it happening? He's giving it at Chatham House or he's given it at Chatham House? We're recording this on Monday and he's giving it tomorrow, Tuesday at Chatham House in London. So we've had a sneak preview of what he's going to be delivering. We have had a sneak preview. We might even have been able to influence it at the margins, Rory. And <laughs> but I think what's, you know one of the things he talks about, something we've talked about a lot, and he frames this as very much as a kind of current American worldview, that the, 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 the dividing line is very much between the concept of democracy and dictatorship. And he's, he says it actually goes further than that. It's the dividing line between those who believe in impunity, and actually I think we'd have to say that some of those are also in democracies now, and those who actually have a sense of there being the need for a rules-based order. But the other thing is, it's, it's actually the title of the speech is the UK's role in the world today. And it's just a very, very sharp, hard-headed analysis of where we are. And he goes through some of the changes they've been, not least on aid and foreign policy, and of course, Brexit. And he calls it, you know, our, our sense of our own selves at the moment, he, he refers to it as, as delusional because we're not actually confronting the choices and the arguments that go to making up what would represent a proper thought through foreign policy in 2022. So to loop back, he, he is, I guess, one of the rare British figures, and maybe William Hague is another one, who seems to be capable of making a big argument about the direction of global politics and locating Britain within this. And he sees the world, as I think we all do in this, uh, in this podcast, as getting more and more disordered. He points to the fact that we've often talked about 2005 as an inflection point. I'm very interested in it because it's not just the moment where the surge in Iraq happens, but it's also the moment where the number of democracies in the world, which have been doubling since 1989, then plateaus. And he mm. points out in the speech that the number of democracies in the world, as measured by Freedom House, is now half what it was in 2005, fallen from 40% down to 20% of the countries mm. in the world. 
And I think that leads to this impunity point because he, he doesn't develop it fully. But what he seems to be saying is that Biden may have made a mistake in framing the world as a standoff between democracies and non-democracies, partly because that implies that 80% of the countries of the world are not democracies, and that's not leaving you many people to work with. But also, I think that he is imagining that you could have relationships with regimes that don't necessarily get described as full democracies, but which believe in a world order. He yeah. talks about impunity. We could talk about the rule of law. And he set up a, a project looking at things like people's respect for human rights, their respect for the environment. It's a very interesting list, which I think would need to be worked into, because I think there's a question mark about his list about whether any country quite meets the standards. Mm. Well, the, I was I was talking to a, a former French diplomat this morning, and I was telling him about David's speech and and so forth. And when I, when I set out that point about the Biden framing and the American framing, he goes, well, he said, well, there are lots of people in, in France and other parts of Europe who don't believe that the Americans subscribe to what he would say was a proper rules-based, order-based understanding of the world and how it works. I think the other big point that David makes, which you know we have definitely talked about, but I'm not sure that the that that many people in politics, both here and in the States, really fully get the seriousness of this, is the fact that the, the so-called multipolar world is a, is a reality and it's not going to change. And China really does now offer a completely different view of how the world should be. And other countries that the Americans used to be able to, not control in quotes, but just feel that if they asked for something, they were more likely than not to get it. Saudi Arabia, he mentions, Ethiopia, he mentions... They don't. There's no kind of automatic loyalty, uh, sense of loyalty to America. And that is happening at a time where these other massive challenges like climate change, inequality, are you know crashing through into our front rooms every night on the television and making so-called ordinary people, close quotes, con- much more conscious of the fact that this is, this is having a really profound effect on the way the world is changing. And it's happened so quickly because 15 years is not a very long time. I, I was thinking about this in terms of the career of, of one of the people who, who isn't necessarily my favorite person in the world, who's David Cameron. Because I, I think we're often defined by those years, our first years in work from when we're, I guess, you know, we leave education and, and th- those first sort of 15 years, 16 years in working life. And in David Cameron's case, it almost exactly coincides with 1989 to 2005 when he becomes the conservative leader. That's where his world values are formed. That's where his vision of the world is formed. And David Cameron, who's not much older than me, I feel looking back at time, looking at both the mistakes that he made over Brexit, some of the problems around the way he handled the Scottish referendum, and in particular, the mistakes he made with Libya and Syria, that he is a prisoner of that period of 89 to 2005. He, he actually, in a sense, is a real child of, of Tony Blair. He sees the world very much at that moment of American hegemony, that moment of growing democracies, he doesn't spot the financial crisis coming. He doesn't see the importance of social media. Cameron famously said that people who used Twitter were twats, was one of his <laughs> comments in 2009, 2010. And you see how by 14, 15, 2014, 15, 16, as populism begins to spread across the world, how radically the world's changed, bringing us to this world of global disorder, which Miliband has described, which almost seems to come from, sometimes I fear, to, to quote Hamlet, Act 4, come from too much sort of complacency and ease. I mean, comes from a sense that the world had got too comfortable and that a loss of the brutality and competition and populism 
came from a world that had forgotten how important restraint and global cooperation was. Mm. I think this point about about delusion is important as well. David talks about that we're living with these delusions about our relative power, influence, and position, delusions that have cost us dear, both strategically and tactically. And it was interesting, did you, did you see Andrew Mitchell's interview in one of the papers at the weekend? Andrew Mitchell, former Secretary of State for uh, International Development, department being scrapped and he's been taken back into government um but his interview was pretty clear if i thought if i'd have been rishi sunak i'd have thought it got quite close to the edges of collective responsibility because let's remember sunak was the chancellor at the time that the uh diffid was scrapped and the 0.7 percent commitment was dropped um but david's points out in in these areas of historic strength like humanitarian aid and diplomacy britain has gone awol Today we're absent yep. and people notice. And you must be seeing that in your work with Give Directly going around the place. 100%. And I, I feel it very, very strongly in Africa where our British presence budget's been cut to nothing. We haven't played a major part in the response on the climate change and drought in East Africa and the Horn. We don't really have the resources to play our role in United Nations discussions around what's happening in Central Africa. One of the sad things, though, is that one of the great achievements of this podcast is we managed to get Keir Starmer to commit to restore the 0.7% international development spend. And I was gently encouraging people who really cared about international development to look seriously at labor as an option. And now to my disappointment, David Lammy in a speech to Christian Aid seems to be backtracking. What did he, what did he actually say? Well, he, he echoed exactly Rishi Sunak's line, which is that they would return to 0.7% when the fiscal situation allowed. And, and that mm. definition is pretty implausible. It's a point at which Britain's no longer borrowing for its daily need and the debt burden is reducing, which is something that doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. So very disappointing for idealistic people who want to vote Labour to see Labour not holding the line on international development. Well, as uh, as we were walking the dog earlier, Fiona was complaining that in her view, we're hearing far too much about what Labour won't do and not enough about what they will. And I think at the moment, they're still in that very defensive crouch where all these traps that the Tories are trying to lay, they're deliberately not jumping into them. But I agree that at some point, closer to election, I hope that was David just sort of having Rachel Reeves and Pat McFadden, Shadow Chancellor and Shadow Chief Secretary, kind of sitting on his shoulder thinking, we've been told we can't make unfunded spending commitments without explaining where the money's coming from. But I, I agree, I think it would be very disappointing and surprising if Labour went into the next election without a very strong commitment on uh, on international aid. Well, should we take that as our break and maybe come back to domestic after the break? Why don't we do that? You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. 
So there's been a lot on uh, the sort of Twitter line on restless politics around the House of Lords and looking particularly at statistics. And I think one of the reasons to feel that the House of Lords is teetering and almost on its last legs is the insane number of lords that have been created, the kind of depreciation of the currency. You've talked about some of the individuals that have been put in in the past, but the big story, I think, is just the numbers. Mm. I I calculate well over 1,100 lords has been created in the last 42 years. And put that in context, during the entire 45-year reign of Queen Elizabeth I, she created only 18 lords. The total number of lords at the end of her reign was, was about 50 compared to where we are today. And the thing really begins to go accelerate under Tony Blair, who mm. I guess, tell us a bit about why he created so many lords. That was partly about a, a lot of conservative lords being there and him trying to balance the house. Is that right? Yeah, it was about, it was about the fact that we, we were facing such political difficulty. And, and bear in mind that we'd, we'd had a, a commitment to get rid of hereditary peers, which I have to say was one of the most balls aching, painful negotiations in which I've ever been involved, in which Viscount Cranbourn and I sat in my office sort of haggling over this, that, and the other, and we had all sorts of other people. And the, the, the peers, they take themselves so seriously. They're so protective of their rights and their privileges. And we ended up, I think it was 72. We kept 72. But even with that, there was still this pretty big inbuilt bias, which meant that, you know, we really had to struggle on on votes. So quite a lot of peers went in there. I think Harold Wilson had a fair, fair old few as well. Um, there's the famous lavender list, of course, of some of his. And then Tony did, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but certainly the, the numbers of the House of Lords went up during that period. The other thing to remember, Roy, as with all of us, peers are older than the average, but a lot of them are living longer. So, <laughs> so to have it over a thousand now is utterly absurd. Um, David Cameron packed in a load. Theresa May was better behaved. I mean, as usual with almost everything, she created about half the number that Boris Johnson did, despite being in office for roughly the same amount of time. By the way, Rory, to be fair to both Tony and Gordon, neither of them did a resignation honours list. And I think that was the right thing to do. I think these resignation honours lists are utterly absurd. Well, you had Liz Truss creating something like one for every two days or one for every one and a half days that she was in office. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) No, it's it's very... And and I, I think the Lords themselves feel this all the time. There were big protests. I mean, there were complaints. You'll remember the complaints about Tony's cronies with his appointments, which was William Hague's great phrase. But there were huge complaints about David Cameron's appointments, bigger complaints about the appointments made by by Boris Johnson. And in every case, the House of Lords is aware that there's only so many people they can take and only so many discredited people that they can take and still retain any kind of status. And, and then there's this PPE contract around Baroness Moon. Moan. What is that about, Rory? Can I just say, I hate to make this point because one or two listeners tell me I make it far too often, but I'm going to do it anyway. If this was happening under a Labour government, that story would be across every news bulletin until we got to the bottom of it. We're talking tens of millions of pounds. We're talking this VIP lane in which it seems that she used her friendship with Michael Gove. We're talking about a wealthy husband who's from the Isle of Man and stashing away millions of pounds into trust funds and family watsits and blah, de blah, de blah, de blah. And I suspect that even our incredibly well-informed listeners, that a lot of them won't know what we're talking about. I mean, I've seen quite a lot of reporting on it, but, but I think let's, we definitely, regardless of whether people read it or not, let's talk through it. So Baroness Moan is this uh, 
very, very wealthy woman who was appointed by David Cameron into the House of Lords in 2015, which I think was a sign again of David Cameron's very peculiar judgment. So anyone interested, Camilla Long, very good article in the Times saying that she simply cannot believe that David Cameron could have put this woman in the House of Lords. I've got it here. I've got it here, Roy. The headline, I interviewed Michelle Moan. She makes every grasping, lazy peer look like an angel. Well, and, and her products, I mean, it's, it's like a sort of joke. I mean, she, she, she promoted something called Trim Secrets Pills, which is, a, you know, a dieting pill for which there's literally no scientific base or rationale, completely based around pseudoscience. She launched her own cryptocurrency. She, uh, and then now has brought an incredible scandal around PPE where it seems as though at least on the, the current reporting, as though she claimed she had whole operations running to get these contracts, which didn't exist at all. So we, we haven't actually talked enough about crypto and the collapse of, of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, that's partly, that's partly, I must confess, because I don't really understand it, despite the main Rory in my life trying to explain it to me. Well, let's just very quickly on that, because it's a slow burn over the last two weeks. He was somebody that I marginally was in touch with. So he's 30 years old. He's somebody who rose to prominence setting up a cryptocurrency exchange, became a multi-multi-billionaire unbelievably quickly, ended up staging events where he had Tony Blair and Bill Clinton on the stage with him. It's a classic picture, both uh, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton very smartly dressed in their suits. And there's Sam Bankman-Fried as a sort of epitome of the Silicon Valley entrepreneur sitting there in sort of white shorts and sneakers mm. and a t-shirt looking like he's just come from playing a game of tennis with a huge kind of mop of hair, was very powerful in the effective altruist movement, which is this movement set up by a, a philosopher at Oxford University, partly, and, and with Peter Singer at Princeton, which is about making sure that when you spend money on development or indeed anything, you make sure it's as effective as possible and you measure the impact. And it's something that Give Directly has been very closely connected to because we've traditionally been seen as a very efficient return on investment. Did it, was, he a do, was he a donor, Rory? He was very close to our movement. He wasn't a direct donor, but I was talking to his foundation, trying to raise money from him about two weeks before this whole thing collapsed. It's a very interesting, uh, actually, conversation with the foundation and understanding where he was going, he was getting into something called long-termism. So increasingly interested not in poverty today, which I found very frustrating because there's so much to be done for the extreme poor. Uh, the number of the extreme poor in the world is actually rising with climate change. But meanwhile, mm. he was focused on asteroid attacks, robot overlords, the dangers from artificial intelligence and stuff, projecting theoretically a thousand, two thousand, even ten thousand years into the future, talking about putative unborn humans and what he could do to deal with it. Anyway, in the midst of all this, having got all these friends like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, having got people like me trying to get him on side on effective altruism, it turned out that he was appears to have been living in Bahamas, avoiding taxes and regulations while talking about regulation in a very positive way. And then borrowing from his company in order to try to invest, and and losing his whole company in the process. So, and he's, and he's, he's now he's now filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy protection, and and may actually be facing criminal proceedings. Oh yeah, for sure. I I was um, with Rory uh, had dinner recently with somebody who had invested with this guy, who said it's going to be bigger than Enron. This is real House of Cards time. And of course, he gave, he was very important donor to the Democratic Party during, yeah. the, during the midterms. And of course, the Republicans will probably use that next election. Gets, but th this links back to this extraordinary figure, Baroness Moan, 
this sort of initially this beauty queen whose cryptocurrency, according to the Sunday Times, uh, sorry, Financial Times, said it was a fiasco that exposes the total absence of oversight in the market. Mm, mm. But your point about him being a, a big donor to the Democrats is that, and it works on the other side as well, a lot of these guys who've made a lot of money very, very quickly in crypto, they're, they're into both of the main parties in a big way, uh, which I suspect will make it politically even more difficult to try to bring in some kind of you know regulation. But And I've watched some of it. I've tried to, I've genuinely tried to understand the way this stuff all works. And sometimes when you watch congress inquiries into these things you you honestly feel like the the politicians are, they're, they're, they're all speaking english but it's a different language to what these guys speak well that, that, that's exactly right i think you pointed that out when you were watching zuckerberg, zuckerberg. Um, yeah yeah but it's also a classic example of, of a thing we complain about a lot which is the sense that politicians both in britain and the united states and in fact generally very few of them have engineering or science backgrounds. Very few of them have technology backgrounds. I remember sitting on endless uh, parliamentary meetings, often in select committees, and hearing elderly MPs gently droning on about the fact they thought Twitter and Facebook were important, but clearly having no understanding of how these platforms functioned mm. or how they could actually be used. And how are we supposed to introduce regulation or indeed come up with any sensible policies for a world where technology will change everything in the next 15 or 20 years when our politicians have zero knowledge. And he also had, he, he had a lot of money in some of these new media companies as well who are now facing sort of fairly big black holes. And it's a, cla it's a classic con when you think about it. You know, you just, you win a reputation as being somebody who's become quickly very, very wealthy and you become known for this thing of philanthropy and <laughs> altruism. And meanwhile, you're basically sitting on a pack of cards that's about to collapse. And when it does, you become one of the biggest bankrupts in history. You're, you're completely right. And of course, the the power of the philanthropy is, is very striking. So he was saying that he was going to give away most of his money. And it seemed to me for a moment that this was somebody who, if he was prepared to put up two or $3 billion, could lift an entire country potentially or lift many, many people in a country out of extreme poverty almost mm. single-handedly. So you can imagine why people were we're drawn to him. Um, on the solution to the House of Lords, I, I am a real believer that we shouldn't have an elected second house because I think it will create gridlock. It'll create challenge between, like between the Senate and Congress. Instead, mm. I think we should try to go for a proper crossbench House of Lords, take away the power of the political parties. Get rid of all of those who are there now and go back to, did you say it was Queen Mary who had 80? Uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth I, yeah. Queen Elizabeth I, right. <laughs> Just over 50. Um, so let's go back Go back to having 50, between 50 and 100. Yeah, I'm not sure we want to go back to hereditaries, but, but it would be good to go back to uh, it being a real group, I suppose, of people that we're proud of. Roy, do you think you should be one of them? Alistair, I think, I think maybe not you or I, but I think we could imagine a much more diverse house. Yeah. We could imagine a house that really reflected our country, but we could also have space in it for people who you were always teasing me about when I call them distinguished, but mm -hmm. people, you know, I like the fact the astronomer royal is in the House of Lords at the moment, and some of the diplomats and soldiers, and you know, we have P.D. James, the detective novelist. I quite like that sort of sense of rich richness. Well, you're, 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 you're almost there. You're, you're almost up to the, the Queen Elizabeth <laughs> first level already. And now listen, but another huge constitutional issue which we should – uh, reflect on was because this this happened after we'd recorded last week was the Supreme Court judgment on Scotland and whether the Scottish government was entitled to hold an advisory referendum, which it didn't surprise me at all that 
the Supreme Court advised that it was not because it is so clearly a reserved power. But what I thought was very, very interesting was in the judgment, because bear in mind, the, the Scottish government's argument was that they shouldn't worry about this because it's only advisory. But the court essentially was saying that because it would be seen as such a significant thing, it would have a material impact upon the question of union between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Yeah, but it goes back to Brexit, doesn't it? I mean, it was Lord Reid's judgment, wasn't it? He had a beautiful statement about how the entire political culture would give legitimacy to it. And I think there's a bit of hypocrisy here from Nicola Sturgeon because during the Brexit referendum, she and many other people, including probably yourself, made a great play out of the idea that the Brexit referendum was, in inverted commas, only advisory and therefore people wouldn't have to pay any attention to it. But of course, she would have held this only advisory referendum in Scotland. And if she'd won, she certainly would have said, this shows legitimately that we've won, which is why I think Lord Reid was right to say, the idea that you can go to the British people ask their opinion on something as big as this and then say, oh, well, it's only advisory and we're going to ignore the result, I think is is very implausible. We got, I think apart from Brexit, we got more questions this week on the Scottish situation and the Supreme Court decision than pretty much anything else. And I guess if you boil the questions down, a lot of them, particularly coming from SNP supporters, are in this area of if the union is voluntary, what is now the mechanism for a constituent country to leave? Well, <laughs> <laughs> because what, what it's saying essentially is if, if a UK government makes a political decision that under no circumstances are they going to do what David Cameron did and have this uh, Section 30 order that allows for the Scottish government to hold a referendum, what is the mechanism? And of course, the other, the other point where Brexit comes in is that Nicola Sturgeon is now saying, well, we're going to make the next general election a de facto referendum. Well, that's a that's a big risk as well. But also the government is saying, well, no, you can't do that because, you know, a general election is about everything. And yet they won the last general election by essentially saying this is an election about getting Brexit done, single issue. And there was one question we got, Rory, from somebody called Anne Lashbrook-Small. I don't know if that's a real name or not. And this just sort of... Sent a slight chill down my spine. Is the threat of armed conflict now the only way for Scotland to leave the UK? Will the recent Supreme Court decision motivate a Scottish IRA equivalent? Well, I, I think I was very encouraged. I mean, you know, I'm not always a fan of Nicholas Sturgeon, but I was very encouraged by the fact that she very quickly came out and said she absolutely accepts the ruling of the Supreme Court and they're going to have to find another route. And that's really good because that means that she's not at all playing into the kind of classic populism extremism. I mean, Boris Johnson did not remotely respond in a grown-up no. way to the Supreme Court overruling him. By the way, just as your friend David Cameron did not respond in a grown-up way to the referendum, if he'd have come out after the referendum in Scotland, the 55-45 result, and said, right, well, that was way too close for comfort. I really don't like the fact that 45% of Scots want to leave. I now really want to drill down and find out why there is this disconnect, and I want to try to fix it. Instead of which, if you came out and you launched that ridiculous English votes for English laws thing. Which- yeah, yeah. Could, could, couldn't agree more. And I, I, I did like the fact that Nicola Sutton, I think she used the phrase, she wants a democratic and legal route out. I mean, the answer to people saying, if it's a voluntary union, how are we supposed to leave? Is that things are not, unfortunately, that black and white. Mm. It's a United Kingdom with a legal system. We set up a devolved Scottish Parliament, which has a lot of powers, but not infinite powers, and there are limits to those powers. Um, a referendum was held relatively recently, 
and people voted by a margin to remain within the United Kingdom. The polls in Scotland at the moment also at the moment show a small majority for remaining inside the United Kingdom. Is that true? Yes, they do. Yeah. And the SNP did not manage to win more than 50% of the vote in the last election, which again, they presented as being a referendum election. So in the end, you, 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 I think the Supreme Court is right legally, but also politically. There's every reason to say that this was designed to be a once in a generation event for a very, very good reason. And that it, it isn't sensible for Scotland to be stuck forever on the knife edge of a referendum, that it would be good to set up a system. You have a referendum and maybe you have another you know, set a period, 15, 20 years before you have the next one. Mm. Well, I, I hope it's not that long before we have another Brexit referendum because it's doing so much damage to the country. Um, but I think we should cover Brexit in the Q&A because we did get more questions on that than anything else. But the other issue I think we should maybe finish with, Rory, is the the whole thing about strikes because it's if you actually add them all together, it's pretty remarkable now how many people our sectors are taking action or planning to you've got train drivers railway staff nurses college lecturers royal mail workers airline ground handlers there are some workers at amazon on strike staff at brewers green king dock workers we just had the whole the teaching strike up in scotland about a thousand civil servants we've got lots and lots of disruptions sort of a network developing which is you know it sort of feels a little bit general strikey at times yeah, well, it's of course the unions don't have the the power that they had in the no. in the the late seventies, so they they won't be able to do quite what they did. But it does reflect some of the same conditions, which is the seventies was also like our current situation, a situation in which there was rampant inflation connected to a recession, which meant mm. that cost of living was going up steeply, people's wages were not keeping up, and yet repeated governments in the seventies, Conservative and Labour governments, felt that they couldn't rise wages to to keep up with the cost of living. Otherwise, inflation would get even worse. So I think this is something that both governments are just going to face again and again and again. And, and I, I'm also, I mean, let's return to this question time, but we didn't fully explore Keir Starmer's comments about immigration. Mm. Some of this, I think, is driven by labor shortages. The fact that the people that are left, particularly in the NHS, are having to work harder and harder with fewer and fewer staff. Almost everything that's collapsing is partly to do with that, isn't it? There was a thing today about um, 4,000 fewer doctors in the National Health Service. Th- these are doctors who have chosen not to come to the UK. That this is dropped off now by 4,000 to the pattern that was developing. The point, though, about whether industrial action is ever effective, so the criminal barristers, they had a lot, fairly long strike and it led to them getting a 15% pay rise in October. But they've, they've been, I mean, in different strikes and different slowdowns going since um, 2016. I mean, this has been a six-year battle for them. They were yeah. hit incredibly hard by, Absolutely. by a lot of the cuts in legal aid. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got refuse workers in Eastbourne. They got a deal over 11%. Train drivers in Scotland, 5%. Bus drivers in North London won an 11% pay deal after threatening to go on strike. Bus drivers in Kent won a pay deal worth nearly 14% after six days of strike action. And BA staff at Heathrow, 13%. But that will, that will encourage encourage others, won't it? I mean, you yeah. can see this spiraling into an inflationary yeah. cycle. Well, yeah. maybe things to return to in question time. But thank you, Alistair, very much. And, and um, look forward to question time. Bye. 